Case file number 6.01. Social engineering. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Agent Crenshaw. Still working on this Gibson thing. No, Chief. You gotta give me more time. Have you even listened to the recordings? It's like an encyclopedia of this hacker stuff. One of them just keeps going on and on about everything that ever went wrong on the internet. No. Nobody knows this kind of crap. He's obviously up to no good. Yeah, the one called Hackalope. No. How is it not illegal? The information is dangerous. And and the other one. The other one. Ymir. He's always going on about everything the CIA and FBI did wrong. All the wiretap stuff, all the crazy projects. How does he know? We already know he's infiltrated NASA, and I am this close to catching him skipping leg day. Now just ask yourself, Chief. What would J. Edgar Hoover do? Come, Chief. All I need is more time. Sooner or later they're going to slip up and I will catch them. Hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. So there's been a kind of a whole host of things popping up lately. I think like in the past uh, month or two, one of the major ones that just came up was a rock star. I don't know if you saw that where a bunch of the Grand Theft Auto 6 pre-alpha stuff got dumped out into the web. Yeah, I did see that. It's not the first time a game company has had something like that happen, if I remember right. No, no. And, um, you know, it was kind of a shame because immediately everyone kind of looked at it and we're like, well, this looks like crap. And it's like, well, it- well it's very early in the development. It's honestly, yeah. it's the spoiling of the storyline and mm-hmm. stuff like, yeah, you got to see it early, but it actually makes the game worse for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. And also, yeah, like people don't seem to understand pre-alpha not yeah. to be seen. It's all in-house. And also even the pre-alpha stuff looked pretty good. So come on, cut them some slack. But that just sucks because, you know, they're going to come down hard on people teleworking and stuff like that. Apple lost an iPhone and people weren't teleworking at that point in time. So I'm not sure that Magic Wand will will cast the spell that they want. True. But um, the main one I wanted to touch on today is actually the Uber hack. I don't know if you've seen some stuff like that pop up in the news about what happened there. How big was it? (laughs) It was big, but also silly. And then since like there isn't too much data on there, I was also going to just go through a few social engineering highlights throughout the years and different things. Yeah, well, social engineering. I mean, we haven't talked very much about it because from a technical point of view, it's not super, super interesting, but mm. it's been really important to a lot of stuff. I know that most of the stuff that Anonymous did that I was familiar with, like getting Sarah Palin's email was social engineering, password guessing type stuff, for example. Mm-hmm. It was, as I recall, that in that case, her zip code. I don't know ballpark what percentage, but probably vast percentage of ransomware attacks are social engineering to the front end of that. The Uber stuff, when all that initially came out, I think I scanned it on Reddit mm-hmm. a little bit and then just started poking around a little bit more. And every time I looked at it, it caught my eye as to the things they were finding or even the way um, it was being described in the news reporting. Cause mm-hmm. one article I read was like, you know how they got in and one mentioned that Uber had used two factor authentication, but mm-hmm. that the users whose credentials were, was compromised was bullied into approving a two factor request. 
So the, the image that came to mind for that was like some sysadmin tied up in a basement getting like the old Casino Royale treatment. Yes, of what they call a rubber hose crypto analysis. But <laughs> well, so it's worth mentioning there that even in the world of multi-factor authentication, there are a few techniques. I've actually been meaning to do some research on exactly how these things work, but various mechanisms for fooling people into approving or doing multi-factor authentication exhaustion attacks are kind of the new hotness in the scam community. Yeah, 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 exactly. The original compromise happened just because the contractor in question clicked on a phishing email and gave up his username mm-hmm. and password. And then from there, you know, once they had the um, username and password, they started spamming the multi-factor authentication requests to the contractor's phone. And the one article that I read kind of just left it at that mm-hmm. to the idea that, yeah, the guy just got so tired of it. He was like, fine, whatever. Yes, like I accept but another news article that I found actually went into the fact that the attacker mm-hmm. messaged this person on WhatsApp is saying that he was IT staff and that the guy needed to accept the push authentication so they could get on. Otherwise, he was just keep spamming him because he really needed to do his job. Yeah. So that, that makes that makes more sense. One would hope you getting a ton of requests to approve some two-factor authentication, you wouldn't just go, all right, fine, whatever. Well, even even that, there's a it's the hey, I they're reaching out to me and I didn't reach out to them on WhatsApp because mm-hmm. I know a scam for a good chunk of time. This was even they even called me and this was hilarious. Where it was like, oh, we're from Microsoft. We need to do some inspection on your machine. Can you get on your machine and go to this URL? And it was pretty hilarious because they had the whole like this may be recorded for quality assurance purposes on it. And I was like, at the end, I was just like, I was gonna. Bring them along. Some YouTubers have done like fishing people out on scams and like find out where they're from. And oh yeah, those are a lot of fun. Yeah, that came to mind, and I was like, I just don't have the patience for this. And I was like, yeah, okay, yeah. you know this is a scam. I know this is a scam, but I kind of <laughs> want the URL anyway. I want to see what it does. <laughs> You're right, right, right. Yeah, he cursed me out and hung up, and I was like, damn, recorded <laughs> for quality assurance purposes. <laughs> but the directionality of the contact has always been one of the things that you should do for any kind of uh of reach out contact stuff that's kind of the closest thing to a silver bullet we have anytime anyone has ever asked me to use whatsapp to communicate with them that's a red flag immediately <laughs> i'm not using whatsapp for any reason i think europe actually uses it legitimately for communication i have uh relatives that are in south america and they use mm-hmm. it a ton and i know that at various points in time for a lot of political dissent activity in a lot of places that are a lot more repressive than where we live, mm-hmm. uh, WhatsApp has been one of the uh, one of the things that was used. Yeah, I think it gained a lot of steam during the Arab Spring. Yeah, it was believed that there was a big deal in Arab Spring. I there's movement movement over to Telegram, and I know that I've seen reports on on patient, various nation state actors mm-hmm. doing at least DNS chicanery, possibly network chicanery to get in the middle of the communication and stuff like that. Okay, interesting. Going back to other episodes we've done about networking and whatnot, mm-hmm. even if you don't know you don't know what's being said, you do know who's saying it. Like this is that whole metadata tracking argument. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And for anyone out there that uses WhatsApp, doesn't realize WhatsApp does display your name and a few other uh, identifying qualities where someone talking to you can obviously just run that through a background check. And I've had people message me and be like, hey, you're so-and-so from here and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, like, great. You just reverse Googled my name and narrowed it down to where I live. Yeah. Also, how much do you trust Facebook? Yeah. WhatsApp is now owned by Facebook. Exactly. 
So back to the Uber, once it all happened and he accepted the push, push authentication, the hacker was finally able to get in. Mm-hmm. And so he just started poking around this user. Supposedly wasn't anyone with high credentials or anything, but mm-hmm. he did have access to a network share. And what was in that share? Just a bunch of junk and also a PowerShell script that contained the admin username and password uh, for <laughs> Thycotic, which is a password manager tool. So, of course, that was a jackpot find. He grabbed Mm -hmm. that and within that had the account information for Duo, One Login, AWS, G Suite, and a few other things. So, basically had access to everything Uber was tied into. Yeah, this is classic just because you didn't win immediately stepping through all of your privilege escalation. This is just kind of the express trip because you got the password manager. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so not only did he have access to all those things, and he went in and exfilled a bunch of different data from different parts of Uber's network, he also had access to the HackerOne bug bounty program. In fact, he even posted a message on all the tickets in the bug bounty. That was basically like, Uber got hacked, like including mm-hmm. this account right here. Like This account was also hacked. Ha ha ha. That, of course, gave him access to all of the company's private vulnerability submissions. <laughs> which he downloaded. That's yeah. hilarious. That was the newest thing I discovered, which I thought was fantastic. Um, and since then, the Hacker One program has kind of like cut off Uber from access. You know, probably yeah. reinstated at some point within the past week or so. But yeah. there was probably some renegotiation of stuff. Mm-hmm. But that is something that I had never thought of about about what a bug bounty program can be. Is that mm-hmm. it's now a clearinghouse for found but not necessarily patched bugs yeah yeah exactly uh, patch vulnerabilities there's a bunch of things that i that, that as you tell the story that i'm like okay bad segmentation bag segregation they didn't put credentials in the right in, in good places one of the things that my primary customer does is all of their endpoints have some internet filtering mechanisms and we've built into that what's called a gray listing technique. And if the uh, domain it's trying to go to has never been used before, have never been seen by the filtering system before, mm-hmm. it won't go there. If it's unclassified, it's not allowed. Hmm. Okay. So when somebody makes a fresh endpoint, fresh domain, fresh host name that isn't on anybody's list, if you're using a gray listing technique, it won't go there anyway. Now, you have to do some engineering to make that work. And that's one of the things that's difficult about that is that home users don't really have access to that technique. You really have to be working at an enterprise level. And right, yeah, yeah. the nature of a lot of these very tech forward companies, frankly, they get annoyed at people like you and me that work in large institutions that are slow, get annoyed at is mm-hmm. we can't, we're in show, it's not just, hey, your laptop can connect to all of our stuff. It's no, no, if you're going to connect to our stuff, you need to have these things going on, including this zero trust web filtering system that does all of our endpoint validation and authentication stuff and won't let you go to anywhere on the internet. They'll let you go to a limited part of the internet. And that's part of the whole like defense corpus on this. In fact, Mm. that customer, I'm probably going a little bit further than I usually do, but they don't allow access to webmail. That's not Mm. that they didn't start by that, by doing that, but they killed it after they basically caused most of their active events from external email. Yeah, I mean, I have had a host of missions that are on like completely segregated from the internet. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, it wasn't too hard to make that work because you know you could just 
download a bunch of packages that you needed, throw them on USB, <laughs> sneak or net them over to the machine, install them. Now, with there being so many dependencies everywhere, I've had managers be like, we don't have the network connected just yet, but like, that's fine. Just pull down the packages you need, throw them on the system. And I've been like, dude, it will take me so much more time to do this than it will to just wait for the network to come up and I can like occupy myself doing other things because you don't understand the dependency hell that I'm going to find myself in. I want to talk about this, but I know that I'm really here. You're talking about the Uber thing, Hmm. Um, Hmm. but we're dealing with a container environment where we want to be very constrained about what goes into our containers. We at least want to know what what's going on there. Right. That doesn't mean that everything isn't connected to the internet, but identifying the source is very constrained. And Mm -hmm. honestly, the fact that I know how to old school do that stuff, if I didn't know that the rest of the team would have been lost. Right, right, yeah. There are ways of like using pip in Mm -hmm. Python to like you do your pip install with certain switches and you can, uh, I actually have the, in my notes, I'm sorry, I don't remember it off the top of my head, but you can have it download all of those things into a directory and be able to zip all of that up and yeah, I think that I, from system to system. I think it might just be download only as one of the flags. Yeah, it's one of the flags, but you are, I think you have to give it a destination directory. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did it give the destination too? But yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about because I had to use that. Yeah. And like most of the package of the library management systems have those things, but most people don't use them when you're used to living directly on the internet without any filtering. That's not the total life that we have. And they also come with, because like I'll tangent here, um, apt if you're using uh, Debian, has mm. apt offline, which is a tool that does the same thing. However, um, apt caches the packages as downloaded. Mm. So if you download a bunch of packages and then you realize, oh crap, one of these ones is updated. I need to pull down the new updated one. You have to go and delete all that stuff from your cache because if you don't, it, it's just going to download the exact same pack. Like it'll, you'll notice that it like speedily goes through everything because it had all the metadata stored and everything like that. Does running apt update uh, not solve that problem? I don't think that worked for me. I can't remember. I, if it's yeah. I'm a big Debian fan, mm-hmm. um, and I and I, I really like app. I really like the Debian package management system. So I'm like, I don't remember it quite screwing me in that way before. <laughs> um, I mean, one of the things I really like about apt over the Red Hat package management system is, and again, this is a thing that people don't seem to use very much nowadays, but used to be kind of a thing is you can select to have certain packages come from different sources than your primary repository. Mm-hmm, right. Which really, which lets you grab Debian experiment stuff that's in development that isn't in your primary repository without doing real, without having to manage your repository and without having to um, do crazy things. Uh, like yeah, static, yeah, yeah, static installation and stuff. And so I was like, that sounds like maybe not. I'm sure if we work together, I could figure out what's going on there. But yes, the caching can get you. Um... Yeah. So that was all of the Uber stuff. And so I was just going to go over some like very real and famous social engineering cases that you know mm-hmm. happened throughout the past 12, 14 years or so. But first, I wanted to touch on something because the idea for this entire episode actually came from a forum I was reading where there was a discussion over the question, is social engineering actually considered hacking? Huh. Because there's a continuum there. So I'm going to give my opinion before we go before we go into it. If you're just basically bullying or scamming people out of passwords, that's not hacking. That's mm-hmm. just scamming. 
I would even say like the masquerading sites thing, which was a really common technique for a while. I think it's less common now, but we have other stuff, which is, hey, this is what you're, this is a website that looks like your bank's website, but is really just a place to collect your pa- your username and password. Right. Yeah. Kind of stuff, especially if somebody's building that and if somebody is uh, copying somebody else's work mm-hmm. to do that, that's not hacking. Mm-hmm. Building it yourself. At least you did the work, even at low to moderate script kiddiness, you have to know a thing or two about what you're doing. Right. Yeah. But if all you're doing is grabbing is grabbing username and passwords, I don't think that that's hackery. Guessing passwords as a social engineering thing, that's tough. Password cracking is a whole mm-hmm. discipline in and of itself. But guessing standard passwords in some kind of automated way okay that's might be hackery but like right right it's definitely not respectable from a technical execution point of view um (laughs) but i've always been on the blue side so i really look down on scammery generally right but like some of this stuff require some of these things require levels of automation and stuff in order to and coordination of information and there's technical sophistication there you have to bring everything together and you have to avoid detection. I can't say that these like MFA exhaustion type things aren't hackery. Don't respect them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You raise a good point. For me, it's if you're chaining things together and your Mm -hmm. social engineering is the first step of, or not the first step, but like one of the primary steps of your campaign in order to get a foothold, then like it's a hundred percent hacking to me because you know, you you're using it like, and long gone are, the days really of just bash through someone's firewall and you're in, into the network and get your zero day and like you're doing all this stuff like and we talked about offline about the stuxnet and yeah. how we quote unquote or whoever delivered you know that malware just dropped usbs in a parking lot or parking garage yeah opportunistic type yeah. uh infiltration but that doesn't do anything unless you've got the tools to make use of it Exactly. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, one toolkit, you know, in this day and age, there isn't just one hack someone leverages. So you chain vulnerabilities together in order to get something done. And I think, two, there's an art to it. One, I'll touch on, I forget who I was watching. It was some YouTube streamer. And he touched on the fact that, you know, the Nigerian scam emails mm-hmm. and yeah. how they were always really poorly worded. And it was like, who who would even buy into this stuff? And I always kind of laughed it off as like, it's trash. Like they're not even doing like spell check. Who would fall for this? He raised a good point in saying that's on purpose because they're looking for the type of individual that wouldn't even notice that because if they can get that person, they're not going to pick up on anything that follows. Or their target selection. Exactly. <laughs> and like that that blew my mind like as I was listening to it because I never thought about that. And I was yeah. like, holy shit. Yeah, that's on point. Wow. Along with the basics of physical social engineering. I think we talked about Offline again, Kevin Mitnick doing a lot of like social engineering, going into different places. Uh, he was not allowed mm-hmm. pretending that you're there for an interview to be like given access to a corporate office or something like that while you're waiting, clear access to USB ports on a computer, that sort yeah. of thing. Just escalating access because the boundaries aren't very strong. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then they, there's the classic, and I trained myself to do this at one point, and I try very hard not to watch people type in their passwords anymore. Yeah. yeah. Because at one point, when I thought myself a with a dirtier hat than I do now, I learned how to read people's passwords as they type them. Mm-hmm. Now I distinctly make sure I'm not watching because 
I don't need that kind of mess in my life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I, I consciously make an effort to like get them to notice that I'm looking away because like yeah. I'm not really even paying attention even if I'm not looking away. But it's kind of yeah, an extra like, hey, look, there's no possible way I'm noticing what you're doing, other than the keylogger. But <laughs> well, in that case, you don't have to remember. I just got to remember my own password for the keylogger. Oh, you see, the right, right there is just you make it one, two, three, four, five. That's that true. way it's the same combination as your luggage. <laughs> you don't have to worry about getting confused or anything. Exactly. Yeah. So some of the historical social engineering fun go back in time a few years here, starting with 2020, mm-hmm. the show Shark Tank. Do you know the show Shark Tank? I know the show Shark okay, Tank. Okay. I was like... Do I know about this hack? No, nope, where's, nope. where's this lead? Got nothing on it. <laughs> One of their television judges, uh, Barbara Kokorin, she fell victim to uh, being tricked out of nearly four hundred thousand dollars. Wow! Because someone impersonated her assistant and sent an email to the bookkeeper mm-hmm. requesting a renewal payment related to real estate investments on her behalf. Mm-hmm. They used an email that was similar to the legit one, obviously not the legit one, in order to do this. And this was not discovered until after the bookkeeper sent an email to the assistant's correct email address, asking about the transaction, trying to like see what became yeah. of it. A lot of times that's how some of those um, false payment mechanisms are caught is like you get a false bill, a false invoice for a real vendor and that gets paid. And then the real vendor is like, Hey, why didn't you pay me? Yeah, exactly. Or, or something like exactly like that, where it's where you think something's up with it and you try and call the folks that you thought you paid. And it turns out, what payment mm-hmm. I, i'll let you i will let you go because i've heard of some very sophisticated false payment scams over time and even touching on that like sometimes places will try to double dip yeah that they're not throwing anyone under the bus but I, i've seen it like personally with especially hospitals getting the insurance payment and then coming up to you and trying to get like a payment and then even after you pay trying to get an extra payment because wow. obviously it mostly works on the elderly because they don't remember often doing that or they think well if they're charging me it's legitimate so i have to pay it yeah the next one is from 2018 and uh carabas county which is located in south central north carolina Mm -hmm. and they suffered a loss of 1.7 million via email attackers impersonated county suppliers and requested payments to a new bank account after the funds were transferred they were split up into several other accounts Mm -hmm. and supposedly the scammer used the apparently legitimate documentation in the emails in order to fool the recipients. Mm-hmm. A lot of these are just massive financial fraud. In 2019, Toyota suffered a $37 million loss when attackers persuaded a finance exec to change the recipient's bank information and a wire transfer. So that's the thing about a lot of a lot of these kind of uh, social engineering scams. The payoff is very large when they hit folks. And in a lot of cases, at least after 2010, at worst, there have been best practices that are supposed to stop these things from happening. But like you always have a human factor in there if you don't have a technical control, even if they're supposed to do an outside validation for something. If they have the ability not to, you ha- still have the vulnerability of that person being social engineered. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like in the case with the real estate judge from Shark Tank and others, if you're impersonating an assistant and you could just prey on that kind of Mm-hmm. human factor of the urgency of like we need this money like we don't have time for like all these stupid checks that the security people put in place like transfer the money now because it's basically make or break and you know just push them the one that i the one that i re- remembered and this would have been i'm like 2012 or something like that and i wish i had i wish i could go find the reference for it maybe i'll try and put it in the show notes 
But in this case, there was a multi-factor authentication setup already in place and their transfer was being asked for and they used a voice emulator mm. to do a phone call and yell at the person that could approve it without the multi-factor widget in order to force it through. Really? Yeah. <laughs> that like the CEO called them and was impersonated and they got belligerent and caused this to happen. So they had multi-factor. They set it up. They were like, you're not supposed to be able to do it even on the CEO say so, but they got loud enough and they got the transaction through. Yeah, exactly. In 2017, the Ethereum Classic website was hacked. Attackers impersonated the owner of the Classic Ethereal, Ethereal wallet and gained access to the domain registry. They then used that to redirect the domain to their own private server. Then they extracted uh, Ethereum cryptocurrency from their victims after embedding code on the website that allowed them to view the private keys that were used for all the transactions. So that blockchain, super <laughs> secure, eh? <laughs> That one, that one didn't even have a price tag, so I'm not sure if they've even calculated how much was taken from there. When I was doing the crypto episode and some and some of the subsequent stuff that I, or, I that I've done, I tried to like start to keep track of the stuff that was going on in crypto world. Mm -hmm. It's Chinatown. Don't even try. Right. There's so much going <laughs> on, and you know, it's one of those things where 99% of the, the transactions involved in crypto give the one percent a bad name. Yeah, exactly. There was also a very famous one from 2016. I don't know if you can remember what this one was off the top of your head. I might need to buy a vowel. In 2016 election time. Are you talking about the election roll stuff? Nope. But think, uh, trying to think of a, uh, a good clue here. I can't think of one. So it was the Democratic Party. Oh, right. No, the, actually, both, from what I understand, both the Democratic Party and the Republicans were hacked. It was the Democrats, the only that they only targeted the Democrats to actually make use of the data. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I, I completely <laughs> forgot the uh, yeah the Republicans <laughs> had their own hack. Yeah, they spawned from there. They used that information to social engineer and get access to John Podesta's email. Mm -hmm. So they changed social engineering attacks on that one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because the uh, the 2016 one for the Democratic Party was just a spear phishing attack led to the leak of emails and information that possibly helped influence the results of the election. The hackers created a bunch of fake emails and invited users through a link to change their passwords due to supposed suspicious activity. After that, they had access to hundreds of sensitive emails regarding the Clinton campaign. Yeah, I just know that if I volunteered for a campaign, I'd be going door to door and I wouldn't be fixing any of this. <laughs> exactly. Ubiquity Networks, they lost around $40 million in 2015 after they fell victim to a phishing attack. Uh, it's believed an employee email was compromised in Hong Kong, and that employee's information was then used to request fraudulent payments made to the accounting department. The 2014 Sony Pictures hack, which we've talked about completely in another episode, so I won't really go into the details there. Yeah. In 2012, South Carolina's Department of Revenue had millions of social security numbers, credit card, and debit card information stolen from them. Again, it was a phishing scam. It had users go to a specific link to change their usernames and passwords. Um, after that, you know, their entire network was compromised. Then RSA in 2011, they fell victim to an email attachment attack. An Excel spreadsheet was attached to a bunch of emails and sent to them. The title for that attachment was something in regards to recruitment plans or something like that. Just a name, yeah. a name to make people want to click mm -hmm. at, and it had a malicious backdoor embedded in the file. Yeah, if I recall correctly, that one released some of the core keys to the RSA 
token um, system. And remember, RSA were maybe a season removed from the crypto episodes, but they literally invented asymmetric key cryptography. Whitfield Diffie might have invented the idea, but they're the ones who made it happening. Like the, they are one of the ER security companies and they still got hit with this stuff. Yeah, exactly. And finally, Target in 2013, which we've talked about in previous episodes as well and touched upon. Malware was installed via phishing emails. They went through the route of the contractors that had network access. Their network wasn't segregated and the customer credit card and debit information was copied over and uh, exfiltrated out. I still feel bad for the chief security officer. I think I mentioned it in the other episode. I had been to his talk about point of sale terminals at Black Hat the previous year. And I was right. like, that's a pretty good talk. And then I saw them get hacked and it was just like, oh, oh damn. No. He sounded confident. That hurts. <laughs> yeah, that makes it worse when the, the press catches on to that and has a field day with it. It's like, I know the guy knew his business and I mean, I don't remember his name or anything, but I remember, like, I knew he knew his business on the point of sale stuff, which was the risk that he had in his head. And I think that's maybe a lesson is like, this is mundane stuff, stuff that sometimes it's easy to think, Hey, nobody should fall fall for this, but it's where the incidents come from. Yeah. 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 And that basically sums up everything on social engineering. I got, you know, I feel like. Mm social engineering in a nutshell is more or less just like fake it till you make it and then keep faking it um <laughs> find out about new episodes at r slash hacking the gibson on reddit and support the podcast by contributing at the wikimedia foundation or electronic frontier foundation